This is the Balanced Artist Podcast, where we help the purpose-driven creator's journey suck a little less and thrive a little more. Hosted by award-winning musician, TEDx speaker, and comedian, Rory Gardner. Who? We chat with experts who help level up your creative career by reframing your lifestyle as a balanced artist. Okay, okay. Here is the balanced breakdown. That's what I'm calling this episode, the balanced breakdown. And this is where we see what the takeaways were from the conversation we had with our expert guest and apply them to our own lives as balanced artists. All right. In the last episode, we spoke with rock star Brian Vander Ark, who's lead singer and songwriter for the Verve Pipe. Remember that band? We were merely freshmen. Great tune, great hit back in the 90s in his solo career. Uh, he's got four albums, one of which is recorded with Jeff Daniels. Remember him from Dumb and Dumber? Harry, I can't imagine Harry from Dumb and Dumber writing songs and singing. It's just weird. I realize he's an actor and he was only playing a character, but I still can't picture Jeff Daniels. So anyway, so he, he released an album with Jeff Daniels. This episode was really cool for me because I've been playing this guy's music for 20 years. Like Brian was huge in the 90s and that freshman was one of the first cover songs I ever learned, which was... The internet had just come out. I had downloaded the chords online and I, I used to play that one all the time. So they released that album in the 90s. They did not repeat the same success. That one went number one. They didn't repeat the same success with their second album. So we talked about how to reinvent yourself after a downturn in your career. He released his uh, comeback album the week after 9-11, which is not an ideal time to release an album. But you can't, you can't predict these things, obviously. He has a public speaking career and keynote about how to cope with the ups and downs of your career. And not everything in your career is going to stay the same. Uh, like I was having more success personally in the country music industry 15 years ago when less people were in the landscape. But now everyone's doing country and I find it hard to write the new style of country that seems to be popping at radio right now. So instead of trying to compete, I leveraged the connections and skill I had developed and applied it to children's music. Got two kids of my own, so I figured, you know what? I can try to write better Sesame Street songs than what's out there right now. So I just used the same session players and engineers I used in Nashville that I created my country records for. And now I have one of the coolest sounding kids records out there because it's, it's produced like an adult record, but for kids. A lot of country or a lot of kids musicians, they sing down to kids. I was trying to give them something cool. But anyway, we got sidetracked. Okay, Brian, he could have thrown in the towel after his first album flopped. But instead, he hit the ground running and started doing these house concerts. Like the phone was ringing. And so he, uh, he decided to hit the ground running and just create new opportunities. And he carved out a new path for himself. And I think he did that for like, I want to say 10 years. I forget what the exact number of years was. But he just, he did these house concerts where you're basically building a business singing in people's homes. And it's done a few of these. They're, they're fun. Like they're you really get to know your audience. See, when you're on a stage, you're literally several feet above your audience. And so there's just, there's kind of a barrier. But when you're in their house and they're two feet away, there's a connection that you're made. And it could be intimidating for some people. I actually like it because I come from the comedy world as well. And I like having that front row right there. I can really interact and correspond with them. But some singers, they don't really, they, it's uncomfortable having people right in your face. And um, anyway, it's a great experience. I like doing them. And he built, it, it's how he survived for uh, 
you know, a decade of <laughs> doing this. And while he was doing it, he was, he was paying his bills. He was writing new albums and, uh, and having a grand old time. I don't think he does it anymore. He is, uh, he's on to other things. He has a public speaking career as well. So he, he's got multiple streams of income coming in now. He's uh, in his keynote, he talks about one hit wonders. And like, if, if you had success, then lost it. Does that make you more of a failure than having never had the success to begin with? Personally, I don't think so. Like if you never had the success to begin with, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you're doing what you love and you're, you know, you're winning. Like if you don't love it, then why are you doing it? Perhaps do something else that fuels your soul. We talked about playing in a band and why partnerships are so beneficial in creating good balance for success. And I can see this because I, in my band, everyone does something different. Like I've been in many bands where like outside of the music, everyone has their own skill sets. One guy might be great at making connections. All one girl is good at generating revenue through sales. And, and one member may have greater business sense while one guy is more risk-taking. It's just, I have a hard time collaborating personally because I, maybe I'm a control freak. I don't know. It seems like whenever I do collaborate, it always seems to work out better because you're leveraging other people's skill sets that you may not have in your tool belt. So I'm trying to collaborate more and it's fun. You know, it's good to collaborate. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm overthinking it. Anyways, he spent $1.2 million recording an album that ended up flopping. I've had albums that have flopped, but they didn't cost a million dollars. That's for sure. On the contrary, there's albums out there that are made for next to nothing that become huge hits. Nirvana's first album, Bleach, was made for under $1,000. And the same with Sublime's first album. And those went on to sell millions, which tells us that your art doesn't necessarily need to be perfect to appeal to your demographic. Like A lot of times, those are just excuses we make for ourselves. Like, oh, I don't have the money or the connections. And like, think, like, what if J.K. Rowling, the author, was like, you know what? I can't write because I don't have the correct pen. Are you kidding? Like, I just, I don't have the right pen. I can't write today. Harry Potter wouldn't exist and she wouldn't have created a billion dollar franchise all because she didn't have the right writing utensil. Give me a break. Like, what excuses are you making for yourself? Ask yourself, like, are these real excuses or just inside your head? I had a great time talking to Brian Vanderark. And if you found this helpful or interesting, go check out the whole episode because it was a great conversation. I think we spoke for like, 45 or an hour and uh, take a screenshot tag me on instagram at rory gardner music check us out on facebook balanced artist and go take the balanced artist quiz on our website now that we've broken down how this episode can be applied to your creative endeavors let's wrap it up with a segment i like to call wasting time with my friend and drummer kevin kevin what do you think of brian vanderark I remember the verb pipe. I, the, every time I hear the freshman, I, I think of when you and I started playing music together. I, I feel like that was one of the first cover songs that, uh, that we learned. We rocked that one for years. We did. And then and when you stick into the bar scene, you can't really play mellow tunes anymore. So, Well, and the kids keep getting younger and younger and they didn't know the song anymore. So, That's true. It is true. We're old. That doesn't, what's the deal with that? Because, I mean, we play songs older than this. Yeah, some hit like ACDC always hits. It doesn't matter how old the crowd is. Yeah, but that's just like a general rock song. Whereas Freshman's more of like a, it was it was really hot in that era of pop rock, whatever they want to call it. Yeah, it's true. Do you think something like there's a whole chunk of the '90s there was just like tons of monster hits that kind of just fizzled away eventually. 
I agree, but I think they all had the same feel to them. That was like a unique feel for the period, and then the periods moved on. Yeah, what makes a, a song? What is it staying power? I don't know. I, I think it has to have like a universal appeal outside of time, not just inside of time. You, like those songs. Uh, yeah, no, but honestly, I, I, I think if I remember correctly, it was right around the time I was learning how to play guitar. That's probably why the, one of the first cover songs we did is because I started learning guitar kind of right before the internet. And so, yeah, we started downloading tabs and stuff like that. This is just one of the easier progressions that I picked up and, and it worked with my voice. And so it's, uh, that's, that's where it came from. One of the first ones I remember learning is uh, She's So High by Tal Bachman. Do you remember that song? She's so high. Exactly. High. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. also in that 90s era kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. I remember uh, playing it for Heidi, my wife, uh, my now wife. Never heard of her. I like how he's playing in living rooms and schools. It sounds like us as well. Well, he's like, you've heard of house concerts, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he like, he, he went balls out on the house concert thing. And so it was kind of interesting. I heard him on a different podcast once and he he talked about, uh, he'll, he'll do tours. He'll, He'll literally just, just line it up and he'll negotiate a price with whoever it is. And, and, he'll do three a day. You know what I mean? He'll go in, it's like an hour show. He'll, he'll play uh, original songs, tell stories. He'll take some requests. He'll meet and greet for a little bit. And then he's off to the next one. That seems nerve wracking to me. Like the smaller, the crowd, the more nerve wracking a show to me. Like if I can make eye contact with everybody in the audience, that strikes fear in my heart. Like give me 10,000 people any day over 10 people. 10 people is the worst. So he's just going 10 people to 10 people here or? No, it depends on that. So basically it's up to the homeowner. Whoever hires him, right? They can either pay for it themselves, the entire thing, the flat rate, or they can charge people to come in. So if you charge each person 20 bucks to come in see, to see Brian Vanderark do his thing. Like, and I agree with you, I, like especially in the comedy scene. Like I prefer a larger audience than a smaller audience. But I think you learn how to, how to diffuse the situation. You walk in and you kind of, address the elephant in the room and then you kind of get to know everybody and it's it's just there's a method and i understand what you're talking about but there's there's definitely a way to uh, to navigate the, the smaller crowds yeah he, what i'm saying is he must be a brave man to uh to walk into that i feel like it would be exhausting the level of on you would have to be for some, such intimate shows i like that i mean you and i have played enough shows that are not intimate and, and like you know what i mean like you're just playing you're a jukebox you're being ignored Everyone's just, there's a, there's a hot dance floor. Everyone's having a good time, big party atmosphere, but you're literally just background noise to these people having fun. I kind of like the intimate, you know, personal touch. Well, maybe that's, uh, that's your next direction then. I already do it. Like, it's just, <laughs> I, I enjoy these kind of shows where you can, and you've played a couple of those with me where you're not necessarily in homes, but like, you know, those gigs where we can, people hear our jokes and people we can talk to the audience and people. Uh, yeah. I like the idea of the captive audience that they can hear. Cause you're right. When you're playing with for a big audience, they don't, they don't catch the nuances of the things that you're saying. You can't, uh, you can't really joke the way that you can with a captive audience. Right. In more like a theater setting or something like that. You're right. Honestly, when you play like to 10 people, like sometimes they're afraid to laugh because they don't want to be the only ones laughing at your jokes. Especially if you're telling jokes, no one wants to engage with you or look at you because they're like, oh no, <laughs> it's a comedy show. They're going to make fun of us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which we do. <laughs> we certainly do. Including kids at the damn kids shows. 
They just like the attention, though. Only the parents know we're actually mocking them. That's the sweet spot you got to live in. I like how his drummer keeps him grounded. That's like the job of the drummer, is it not? Just to bring you back to the beat. Yeah, because it works for the band and in life. Because we talked about that for a little bit where he's... I asked him, like, well, who's, who's, the, who's the business head of the band? He's like, I kind of share that duty with the drummer, who, who I guess has that business sense, but he doesn't necessarily to put himself out there where Brian's a little bit more resilient in that self. 1.2 million on an album, though. How, I know how many albums you have sitting in your basement right now. 1.2 million albums. <laughs> 1.2 million albums at $1 each. Exactly. <laughs> I, I say, I have, yeah, I own more of my own CDs than it cost me to record them. So yeah, he told me about that. I'm like, where the hell? Because I've recorded albums. I know how much things cost. And he's just like, yeah, it, it, I mean, you got to listen to the conversation to get the whole story. But there's delays and the, their label has these four or five guys up in a hotel room in New York City for four months waiting for things to happen. And it's just overages. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Like it has nothing to do with the actual recording process. It's just more of like these random overages just to just to fulfill the rock star persona. I don't have any of that, so I I just I'm on a budget. <laughs> you're uh, you're the Walmart equivalent. I'm the Walmart. So I mean, no, you're skyping in from Ottawa. That's the thing. I used to, so yeah, I used to go to Nashville all the time just to record everything, and you'd be up there for three or four days tracking and you're going the next day to do your vocals and stuff like that. And so you don't need to, now you're, 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 flight, you got your hotels, you got a rental car, you got all this sort of stuff. So, you know, that's like equivalent to a song or two of actual recording budgets. So, yeah. I mean, now I just do it over Skype. I, I just, I direct the guys over the computer. I'm like, that sounds a little off. Can we try that again? This and that. And then I just record the stuff at a local studio here, the, uh, the vocals. And then with the magic of, Modern technology. Modern technology. We can mix it together. And it's uh, in the digital age. Exactly. I don't have to leave my children and everyone's happy. Sometimes I voluntarily go for like long recordings. Uh, I was going to say, are you happy? <laughs> are you happy not to be able to leave? <laughs> yeah. No, it, I mean, I started doing it when they were young and they were little, they needed me a bit more. And now I just, maybe I'm just lazy now. I just, I just don't want to leave anymore. Well, now it's a pandemic. You can't get into the States even if you wanted to. So that's true. It means you can still record an album. That's true. Imagine like we couldn't even Skype into the States. Like Trump put up like a, a firewall. <laughs> He's afraid, you know, COVID might be, might be transmitted through the Skype, through the Zooms. We don't know how it works. You never know. Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty sure I got the virus through email. <laughs> I hear there's a lot of viruses that way. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, we hit a joke at least. That's all we've got for this episode of the podcast. We have new shows every week. So remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with anyone you think could benefit from becoming a balanced artist.